Hello, lovely podcast listener. Chris here at Watford Jazz HQ with a quick advert for our crowdfunding of our 2022 Jazz Festival and some recordings with our fab musicians that we'll be making between now and then. Visit watfordjazzjunction.com and click on the Donate Now banner at the top. Every penny will count towards keeping the jazz alive and paying musicians who've had such a torrid time recently. Right, back to the podcast. Welcome to the Watford Jazz Junction podcast. I'm Chris. And today I'm chatting with Anne Frankenstein. So jazz chat to the max, coming up. Hello, 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 and welcome to the first episode of Series 4 of the Watford Jazz Junction podcast. Wherever you're listening to us, online, on the radio, on the tube, or even in the loo, you're most welcome. My special guest today might sound familiar, as she possesses one of the most mellifluous tones in British broadcasting. She runs a daily show on Jazz FM every morning and lunchtime, has residencies at clubs London-wide, as well as popping up in New York City and on decks across our groovy globe. It can only be the most wonderful Anne Frankenstein. Hello, Anne. How are you? I'm good. How are you doing? Thanks for having me. Oh, it's, it's our great pleasure. Whereabouts in the world are you on this sunny day? I think I'm very close to you, actually. I am uh, just next to the River Lee in the sort of um, more industrial, less populated side of uh, Hackney Wick. That's how I like it. Ah, you see. So I'm recording in mid-Hackney at the minute. Not too far away from Watford, but I'm a traveller at heart. (laughs) Now, talking about travelling, you're a most active DJ in ordinary times. How has lockdown been affecting your mojo? I think I was working a little bit too much before lockdown happened and I think I was getting a little bit tired and jaded because I had been working primarily as a DJ for several years. Just, you know, all the fun gigs started to come in just as I got that. Well, you know, I was sort of building this momentum and stuff and I had these really nice residencies and they were all sort of, I was at the Jazz Cafe and I was at Spiritland and all of these places you know, towards the end of 2019, I was put in charge of the mid-morning show at Jazz FM. And that was the first time in quite a few years that I had to be somewhere at a certain time in the morning. (laughs) And I don't know what possessed me, but I sort of thought, I can carry on presenting this show and also playing four or five gigs a week. You know, who cares if I'm a little bit tired? Rock and roll. And um, I think I was sort of slowly uh, disintegrating from the inside, having kept that up for quite a few months. So in a way, it's kind of been, I do miss DJing, but it's been nice being able to focus on broadcasting for the past year, because I think if I had kept up at that pace, (laughs) I'm not sure what would have happened, but it wouldn't have been good. No, I think think there there should definitely be some winners uh, from this lockdown. And uh, yeah, re-energising has got to be one of the most important things, I think, for loads and loads of people. So you mentioned Jazz FM. You broadcast what, every day to about 200,000 people uh, and to millions as a voice on the BBC from time to time. Um, and of course, coming on to the Watford Jazz Junction must feel like yet another level up. Absolutely. Do you sort of feel, do you feel a great pressure when you're broadcasting or do you not think about the numbers? It's very hard to think about the numbers. I mean, how do you picture that many people I just don't think the human brain is capable of doing it like I think they you know not to to um 
not to add a sort of morose kind of energy to this conversation straight away, but at the end of um, at the end of Newsnight recently, they did a very clever thing to illustrate the amount of people who had died from coronavirus because it's so hard to picture when you know you you can quantify it, but it's impossible to sort of imagine it. And they showed footage of the opening ceremony to the to the uh, 2012 Olympics, and that was how they illustrated yeah. it. But it's only kind of by picturing stuff like that that you really cop on to the fact that there's that many people listening and also you know it's not like tv presenting or something where people are kind of glued on you I think a lot of people listen to the radio quite passively and certainly with the continuity announcing that I do for BBC2 do you listen to the continuity announcer do you pay any unless they were to swear accidentally or something would you have a have a notion what they've just said after they've spoken to you I hang on there every word (laughs) well I think you're in the minority Depending on what you're going to end up watching, it might be the best bit of it. Well, that's why, listen, no (laughs) comment. But yes, that may be true. Um, I think it's very different from, you know, getting up on a stage in front of 200,000 people and giving a speech or something. You know, I, I, I think I sort of calm myself down by imagining that most people are quite sort of engaging in quite a passive way. Yeah. The, um... So what was your sort of journey to, to sort of where you are now? Were you sort of into jazz and music when you were growing up, Little Girl and all that? Or did this sort of become a teen? I don't know. Just I'd love to know your journey. <laughs> yeah, 100%. I mean, I was always obsessed with music. Um, and uh, I guess my my parents were sort of averagely into music. My dad was quite into blues. And so that was my sort of channel getting into that. But it was just inherent. Uh, you know, my my mum's father, Sid, was a jazz musician. He was a alto sax player. He actually died the same day I was born, which is quite spooky. Wow. Um, yeah. But he was a sax player. He traveled all around the States and he sort of settled in New Orleans for a while um, before the, the financial crash. And then he came back to Ireland. So I like to think there's a little nugget of Sid in me somewhere because my my family liked jazz but it wouldn't necessarily be there it wouldn't have been what my parents were were listening to hugely um but yeah I kind of just um once I realized that I could uh force my music on everyone in the car I think that gave me a taste for forcing my music on other people (laughs) which um, (laughs) led me into DJing um which led me into broadcasting but my main fascination was always with older music. For for some reason, I was always a real retrophile. So anything, you know, particularly with blues and jazz music, when you can go back to the, the sort of, it's just very authentic. You know, you can trace it back to its origins. You could see where it comes from. And jazz and its kind of blue note heyday, it's just so, there's nothing derivative about it. And I think that aspect of it, even at a very young age, really appealed to me. The idea like here are a bunch of people who are doing something completely new, um, especially because I kind of, you know, I was a I was a, um, a sort of preteen. I was born in 85. So in the 90s, I was sort of getting into music and it was a real Britpop was was really the thing. And I kind of came to realize that what those artists were doing was sort of taking from the, the bands of the 60s and 70s, which I then was turned on to. And obviously they were, you know, Rolling Stones and whoever else, them and whoever were influenced heavily by the sort of chess records era of blues and beyond that. And I just kind of kept going back and back and back, I guess, searching for that 
that authentic sound. Yeah, no, we, we've had it come up a couple of times, but just how fresh some of those uh, 78s are from the 1920s when you're listening to like Louis Armstrong and whoever. And it's like, it's as relevant now as it was then because there isn't, your word was perfect. There's nothing derivative about it. It was just fresh. So in our last series, um, I was starting to get into genres and really starting to explore it and how important they are. Um, but I sort of come for a conclusion for now that it's just really whatever floats your boat and makes you happy. Um, now, you've got a very active Twitter account, um, and I just love watching you sort of spinning music, because when you're playing, you just get this sort of really wide smile on your face, and you just disappear into the groove. Um, I guess what I would really like to know is how important is music to your mental well-being, the sort of day-to-day, and what would happen without it? Yeah, I mean, there's, it just puts me in touch with a certain part of myself that I can't access any other kind of way. And it's interesting that you point out, you know, watching me DJ, I posted a um, footage from a live stream I did um, a little while back, uh, which um, was the first kind of proper like DJing that I'd done in a while. You know, I've moved house over the past six months and my decks are set up and everything, but I hadn't like played you know, as though I was playing a gig for a long time. And I think coming back to that, having had like almost a year off, it was just a very nice invigorating feeling. Um, You know, I I really enjoyed doing that because I think I did get a little bit tired and jaded playing live so often before lockdown. So yes, I think you you saw me in my element there. Um, And Yeah, I think as well, none of us have had the opportunity to go out dancing over the past year. And I just feel like a coiled spring, you know, and I I have no reason really. All of that disco and funk stuff that I was playing, I wouldn't necessarily listen to that casually. And it's not the kind of stuff necessarily that I would play in my radio shows. So just digging out that music and just remembering how good it feels to play that stuff and dance to it. It's just like a, it's a real tonic. Absolutely. You, You do play quite an eclectic mix though I'd suggest on your show um having sort of listened to it and in, in recent months um and just getting more and more drawn into it what what is your what is your sort of starting place for what what goes on the turntable yes I mean I think so so I, I present the mid-morning show which is 10 to 2 and then I also have a late night show called the late lab which goes out on Thursday evening and my approach to both of those things is very very different with the mood morning show you have to be conscious of the fact that there are people kind of passively listening people who don't necessarily want to hear anything too honking or squawky or weird you know in the middle of the day um, although Jazz FM officially being a commercial radio station I mean we have the biggest library I think of any commercial radio station around so it's it's very diverse like within the the sort of parameters of having to play a daytime selection that's not going to upset anyone too much um you know we we do try to be really diverse there's lots of blues in there lots of latin stuff um obviously people like miles and john coltrane and stuff like that gil scott heron and then there's more contemporary sort of um you know, your kind of uh, commoner garden jazz FM daytime listens, people like Gregory Porter who kind of are never going to offend or upset anyone. So I think the most important thing for daytimes is 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 getting that balance right. Um, and in terms of, of how I, I present that stuff, it's interesting because you do have a range of uh, of 
of ears tuned into Jazz FM, some people who really, really, really know their stuff and come because they want to to um, hear stuff they're not going to hear anywhere else. And then, of course, you have people who just tune in casually and don't want to be alienated with some kind of assumption that they already know a musician's entire back catalogue. So it's interesting kind of straddling that that divide and, and making sure that it's a accessible place for, for everyone. So we'll, we'll, I think I'll come back to that towards the end. I find it a really interesting space. But right now, I've got a, a two-part question for you. And it's about guests. So it's about interviewing people. So part one, I want to know sort of how much research you do on your guests. So, for example, before the show um, started, I knew that you were, of course, born in 1925 in a northern (laughs) Finnish yurt before excelling at an early age in alpine athletics, thus paving the way for your celebrated stint as goal attack for Utah Jazz before your obvious move to Jazz FM. Um, So research is part one. Part two, who's been your favourite guest? Ooh, research... Yeah, I mean, I I have a a producer who I work with who'll give me notes and stuff, um, just like little pointers on new releases and stuff like that. If it's someone who whose music I don't know inside out, because a lot of the time with booking guests, it could be someone who's just, you know, who I've said, please, can you track down this person so I can speak to them and tell them how much I love them? Or it might Uh be someone who's new on the playlist. I don't know that much about them. And so I have to assume the listeners don't know that much either. And so it's, it's much more interesting if you have someone new on the playlist it's 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 good to have a, a chat with them so you can kind of introduce them to the listeners a little bit more um yeah. I would say I do an average amount of research but then I, I kind of I'm I'm probably quite informal in terms of how I I chat to people and stuff so I would much rather sort of get the information out of them than rather than kind of assume a level of knowledge um yeah 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 it's a balance, isn't it? I mean, you know yourself, you, you research doesn't like over researching doesn't necessarily help you because the point is you want that person to explain themselves to the, to whoever is listening. Yeah, absolutely. But you do have the advantage that your producer, I assume, is a person, whereas my producer is a dog. Uh, and he's pretty, he's pretty <laughs> useless. That sounds great. <laughs> a dog? What kind of dog is it? Oh, he's uh, Zhushan, which is he's half Shih Tzu and half Bichon Frise. That is adorable. Total Ewok. He's useless. Um <laughs> So of all that, so of all the lovely people that you've spoken to, who stands out for you? Well, uh, I have spoken to some people I never thought in my entire life I would ever get a chance to speak to, and like dun, I say, dun, some dun. Of the, go go go. Who? Some of the time, it's literally because I've said to my producer, "Please, can you track down Gary Bartz? I just want to tell him that I love him," you know, or someone like that. But. It was a real thrill chatting to um, Niall Rogers. I spoke to Stephen Fry earlier in the year. That was lovely. And we kind of connected over his, uh, he saw Ella Fitzgerald play live at Ronnie Scott's. Um, so he sort of went in depth about that. And he was just a really pleasant person who wasn't behaving as though he was on a press junket, even though he was promoting a book and was probably bored out of his mind talking to Egypt on the radio. Um, so that was lovely. But but Niall Rogers, I think, was the highlight. First of all, he stopped me while I was introducing myself and he was like, can I just say you have the coolest name? And I was like, why can't? <laughs> like... That's not bad coming from Niall Rogers. <laughs> totally. And then he kept calling me Dr. Frankenstein for the whole interview. I was like, this is just, it doesn't get any better than this. How can I top this? That's a real cracker. Um, now, since you said um, Gary Bartz, I uh, ended up sitting next to him um, <gasps> watching uh, Herbie Hancock a couple of years ago. Wow. And where were we? In the Barbican. And I was like, and I didn't really think about who I was sitting next to. And I sort of turned to him and I went, oh, 
If, uh, what, do you, what do you think? And I said, if you know, if you, do you know Herbie? That's what I said. And he went, <laughs> he went, brother, we played together. For, you know, you know, and I'm like, yeah, of course you did. Yeah, sorry, Gazza. Carry, carry on with the show. La, la, la. And then I had to sit there for an hour and a half looking like a right numpty. Oh, dear. You know, he doesn't you know, suffer fools either. No, no, he certainly didn't suffer Chris. Now, <laughs> no, I'm joking. He's a lovely guy. Yeah. Um, so what excites you most about the London jazz scene? Um, one of the things that, I mean, there's so many exciting things about it, like, and that's why it's so fun to be in the position that I'm in, because you have all of this amazing brand new stuff coming through and it's just a pleasure to introduce it. And you can say like, this comes from London or this comes from somewhere in the UK. And, um, but one of the things, one of the things I love about it and actually, um, you know, it's, it's making me really, um, it's making me really sentimental for festivals and stuff. I love how there's a real dance floor element to a lot of the the um, UK jazz that's coming through now. I really like that it's um, it's it's made for people to see live and engage with and dance to. And I think that's really special because coming from, you know, being a grumpy old DJ who's been DJing for whatever, 20 years, you really yeah. worry. Like, it's a concern how much people for the past generation or so have been really interested in just hearing stuff they know. Um, And I think this whole new wave of UK jazz, bringing young people out to see jazz music, to see music that sometimes is almost entirely improvised, you know, they're willing to go and get into it and dance to it. And I just think that that's amazing. It's also nice to see a return. You know, there's nothing wrong with, with, um, with uh, sort of, um, I guess, amateurish music making and sort of homemade stuff and like sitting at home programming music or whatever. But it's nice to see a return, not just to instrumentation, but to the idea that like, if you want to get good at playing your instrument, you have to sit at home and practice and practice and practice and practice or get together in a group and practice. It's really nice to see that sort of craftsmanship coming through in music again. Again, not to diminish the sort of more homemade, amateurish kind of approach, of course, is a place for that. But it's just delicious to see some young kid getting up on stage who clearly has, you know, put all their time and energy into practicing their instrument and getting better yeah I, I totally agree with the production values they've sort of gone up and up and up um and it used to be um that sort of sense that the home production was all a bit sort of average but of course people have really nailed it and they've been doing it since they were little and they don't think twice about it, it I, yeah i think it's a really smart observation um and I know what that sort of looks like around London with sort of Jazz Refreshed and Tomorrow's Warriors and, and, and that, as you say, that surge of talent. When you're looking then sort of part two of my question nationally, are you, are you getting sent stuff, tipped off, sort of told about going, different things going on? I was chatting with sort of Faye McAlvin a series or two ago about, you know, what's going on Newcastle, Leeds, where, et cetera. But yeah. it's something about geography that just makes me too centric around the capital and indeed Watford. But, you know, what... But you've got a national sort of reach in, in, in many ways. So it'd be interesting to know. Yeah, I would say um, Glasgow probably has one of the most exciting scenes at the moment. Um, the thing about, so the thing that I'm really noticing about Glasgow, the Glasgow jazz scene is like they really don't give a crap. They just, they will bring in elements of all kinds of different music 
and they're not trying to impress anyone. They're just interested in being innovative and creating a new sound. They're not pretentious about it. They're not precious about it. Um, I'm thinking of one band in particular, Nimbus Sextet, who just signed to Acid Jazz last year, um, have just really Im- impressed me with with their they they just have this really unique sound um there's also uh other aspects of scottish jazz which i'm a little bit in love with people like fergus mccready who yeah. is this incre- unbelievably talented pianist and i think i just love how he brings these sort of folk elements into his music the sort of celtic folk elements obviously strikes a chord with me and it could be really cheesy and it could be really kind of new age or whatever, but it just isn't. It's just so, he is such a talent. I mean, what he's doing is just so different and so unique. My eyes have been on Scotland quite a bit over the past year. I'm looking forward to get getting up there and seeing some stuff live. Oh, yes, we'll all be behind you, however we can get. <laughs> Come along, we'll get a tour bus. Yeah, we'll make a part, jazz party bus. So, are you ready? It is time for my new feature. And I'm calling it the Watford Jazz Junction Top Trump Top 10 50-50 Jazz Ultimatum, where we're going to speed you, Anne, through a hellfire blitzkrieg of 10 questions in under two minutes. You'll have less time to think than a Charlie Parker break being played at double speed. So, Anne, are you ready? I'm ready, but I can't guarantee I'm not going to leave you a load of dead air while I think about all the answers to these. <laughs> it's a, it's fair, fair enough with literally no warning this was going to happen. So, question one. Jazz morning jog with a smoothie or late night jazz hang with a cocktail? Oh, late night jazz hang. I mean, I don't really drink. And also these days I fall asleep at about 8pm, but it just made me feel a little bit sick with the idea of an early morning jazz jog. No way, man. Yeah, I apologise to all the, for the Junction listeners uh, to even suggest that anyone on this uh, podcast would jog or drink a smoothie. Question two. <laughs> Love Supreme or Montreux? Ooh, it's got to be Love Supreme. It's got to be Love Supreme because I've physically experienced it. I'm probably elaborating a bit too much. I'm defeating the purpose of this whole line of questioning. You're jazz. It's fine. It's what we expect. (laughs) I'm improvising. (laughs) So question three, Billy or Ella? Billy. Question four, Sonny Rollins or John Coltrane? I'm going to go Sonny Rollins. That's the correct answer. Question five. Makaya McRaven's drums, Esperanza Spalding's bass, or, cheeky option three on this one, drum and bass. Oh, you mean I can have Makaya and Esperanza? Yeah. Yeah, I just wanted to put it in there. Um, Right, question six. Trad or bop? I'd like to be cool and say bop, but I'm going to have to go trad. Good, very well. Question seven. Vinyl or 78? Oh, I have to go vinyl. I've got nothing to play a 78 on. I feel like one would disintegrate in my hands. Question eight. Jazz hats or jazz plaits? <laughs> what are those things? Is some new, new hip terminology that I'm not... You don't jazz, know the jazz, jazz plait? What's a jazz plait? Uh, you just plait your hair, but in a jazzy way. <laughs> I've had the same hairdo since I was about two years old, so maybe a hat is the best option. Question nine. New Orleans or New York? Ooh, uh, that's that's impossible. That's impossible. Those are the two greatest cities for music on the face of the earth. You can't make me. I'm... Come on, you don't have to call it. That would be cruel of me. Question 10. <laughs> final question. Headphones or speakers? Headphones. 
headphones. I like to be private with my listening. Yeah, I wish a chap who cycled along the canal felt the same. <laughs> um, so, well done. Um, by my tallying, I think you've reached 26 points, bar for the fact of getting some of them were the key ones wrong. But you got a couple of ones right Ooh. as well. So well done. <laughs> I um, didn't realise it was an actual quiz. I thought I, I thought we were in the trust tree. I was just being myself. No, you're, it's a highly competitive <laughs> new feature. I'll be having a ranking board and everything. Um, <laughs> but on the plus side, you're both number one and bottom at the minute. I mean, it's it, whichever you want. So uh, my serious question now, um, and I think we've sort of been leading up to it, but my set question, Anne, what is the balance to be struck between playing people what they know and opening their ears to something new. Discuss. Well, I think radio and playing out are two different kettles of fish. I think with radio, it is much easier to sort of introduce people to... With radio, I take take far more seriously my responsibility to introduce people to stuff they don't know with with an introduction and a context and an explanation. And this is why I like it, you know, along with stuff that's going to make their day that they they're familiar with or, you know, that's going to please them with DJing. And maybe this is because I've been doing it for 20 years. Um. I I get very resentful of the idea that I need to pander to people and it kind of ruins my night if I end up having to play Cheryl Lynn, Got To Be Real, followed by, well, previously it would be Michael Jackson, probably not anymore. But you know what I mean? Nah. I, I, I just didn't like that feeling of having, having to pander. A good gig for me is where I get to play maybe bits and pieces that people might be familiar with or or stuff that might have been sampled over the years or something like that but my ideal gig playing out is just um you know killing the dance floor and just playing whatever I want to play because I I never play anything that's inaccessible I never play anything that's not danceable and uh you know I think people associate funk and disco with nostalgia um and so you could be a house dj and go out and play a set full of things that people don't know and people would dance to it fine. I think when it comes to the music I play, people expect to hear stuff that's familiar. A lot of people have a very narrow idea of what what belongs in that category of music. And yeah. so they're expecting to hear, you know, things that you'd pick up on a compilation from a motorway service station when actually there's so much more to those genres and I would rather play an entire set of stuff that people don't know and just alienate an entire room of people than than uh, pander to a to a, a hungry dance floor what a fabulous answer I d- I, it needs no more saying from me thank you I'm never going to get booked again after this. <laughs> <laughs> um, now this may be the hardest question I could ask you but the Watford Jazz Junction listener needs to know, what are your top three albums and why? Oh, that's hard. It depends on the day or the time and the, you know, period I'm going through in my life or whatever. But off the top of my head, the first one that comes to mind is a album by Manu Dibango called Solo Piano Volume 2. Um, which sounds like a really pretentious choice, but I promise it's not. It's basically Manu Dibango decided to make a couple of albums of African folk songs just with solo piano. So these beautiful little African melodies, I have a real thing about solo piano, it really gets me. And 
I picked up that album when I was working in a record shop years ago. I looked at it. I was like, this looks really weird. I bet it's going to be amazing. And it, and it was. And any time I've ever played it out, like it's Spiritland or whatever, people always come up and ask me what it is. It's one of those albums that just changes the entire atmosphere of a room, no matter where you play it. Um, so that would certainly be on that list. So Madhu Dibango is locked in a, well, one of the top three. One of the top three. We don't have to rank your top three. Nice. Next. Jesus, this is hard. I I think Paul Simon's Graceland is one of the most Ooh. perfect albums of all time. And I know that I went on a big um, tirade earlier about how important it is to me that music isn't derivative and that that album is basically, you know, capitalizing on um, influences and sort of funneling it through this like accessible Western kind of... Um, you know, nice little tidy package. But uh, I just love that album. and It's got a lot of good memories for me. Um, the third one, I would say, is probably um, uh, Tom Waits, Small Change. Um, I love Tom Waits. This is the first album that introduced me to him. And it's probably one of his jazziest albums. Um, and it's kind of it's got a few sort of maudlin ballads on it but it's also got some really cool kind of beat poetry and stuff like that um the lyrics are really vivid as they always are with tom waits and uh it's just like a little bit it's a little bit grotty and a little bit uh, just a little bit edgy and a little bit cool and so it's one of my favorite records of his and i would probably I would probably take that album away to a desert island with me. As soon as I've had a chance to think about this, I would probably... Manu Dibango would stay on that list. The other two I might change for, for, for something a bit more relevant to, to what we're talking about. But those are the three that, that spring to mind. I, I mean, that's a classic top three. There's no, there's no worries here at all. I mean, going back in time, I, I think I, I'd put in my top three at some point. Um, Alanis Morissette's Jagged Little Pill. It's fine. It's whatever floats your boat at that, that, is, that as, day. As a whole album, you know, that is a good, I, that, is a, that is a great album as a whole album. You know, that was a, I remember that cassette tape very well. It was life-changing. Me too. <laughs> Love it. Okay, so you've passed the top three album challenge. You've, you've, <laughs> you've sailed through my, my, my top ten question fest. Now, your final challenge. I want to introduce you to our house band. It used to be a septet, but nowadays has because grown to become a nonet. There's frankly some rank disregard from my guests for the bank balance of this podcast. But right now, up front, we've got Vi Red on alto. James Morrison, who self-selected to replace Mark Nightingale controversially in the last episode. And right. Dizzy Gillespie. Yeah, but I mean, it's James Morrison. He can do what he likes. <laughs> That's um, hiding there in the back, you can see Duke Ellington on keys. And we've got a double, double bass with John Patitucci and Christian McBride. We've got Brian Blades on drums. We've got Leanne Carroll on vocals and backup keys. And, as if that's not enough, we have the wonderful Shirley Tete on guitar. Now, I'm a generous soul. I am going to let you review this setup. And you may change up to one, one of the players. Not add, change, substitute, give them a break. Who would you like to, who would you like to give a breather to? Okay, so there's two that I have in mind, right? And these are two, two great musicians, um, but also two strong Ooh. personalities in different ways. You probably wouldn't like to be in a band with either of these people. I feel like they're going to upset the apple cart quite a bit. 
because it seems like quite a, it seems like quite a nice civilized peaceful sort of lineup you know <laughs> you know not i wouldn't say amazingly talented musicians but like not necessarily massive egos bouncing around i want to throw some massive egos into the mix i think so i'm gonna kick out do it make it happen Anne. one of your bass players it was christian mcbride who was the other one john patacucci let's give john a rest and we'll bring in the late great jaco pistorius <sighs> just to completely destroy the sound of the whole setup and also bring some drama and some uh, egomaniacy into nice. the lineup. And did you say you have a double substitution or we're just going for one? Well, I was toying with the idea of, I mean, Buddy Rich is probably my all-time favourite musician ever. But I was just thinking, like, he's just going to dominate the whole thing, isn't he? I mean, there's no point in having any other musicians there. Exactly. He's a one-man drum kit with a, you know, you don't need the band. Um, I think we'll leave uh, Blades then. Um, although he does like playing with John Patitucci. This makes me troubled. I tell you what, let's do it. Let's trial it because we haven't had Buddy Rich in the band before, surprisingly. Um, so I'm going to let you do, um, because you've been such a great guest, the double substitution. So goodbye, John Patitucci. Jacko Pistorius, hello. And I'm sorry, Brian, uh, but it's welcome to Buddy Rich. Watch out, everyone. It's going to get wild. So. This is, I'm glad I'm not in this band. It's going to be a nightmare. <laughs> I'd watch them play though. Oh yeah, they have to self-manage. They don't listen to me. <laughs> um, so thank you so much for being with us today. As Anne said, you can tune into her show um, every weekday, 10 till 2 on Chaos FM and on Thursday evenings. And maybe join us in catching her at a, a live set once the lockdown lifts. If you've liked what you've listened to, make sure you subscribe so you don't miss any valuable episodes. And if you want to know more about Watford Jazz Junction, check out our website at watfordjazzjunction.com or follow us on Twitter or Facebook. At, as some of you will now know, you can also email us at jazzwatfordlive at gmail.com, but only say nice things. Next time, we're in conversation with sax supremo Dennis Baptiste. Don't forget to keep your ears fresh and always connect with something new. So it's goodbye, lovely listener. It's goodbye, Anne. Goodbye. And it's goodbye from me. Goodbye. Goodbye.